Section three of A Tale of a Tub by Jonathan Swift. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A digression concerning critics. Though I have been hitherto as cautious as I could, upon all occasions, most nicely to follow the rules and methods of writing laid down by the example of our illustrious moderns, yet has the unhappy shortness of my memory led me into an error from which I must immediately extricate myself before I can decently pursue my principal subject. I confess with shame it was an unpardonable omission to proceed so far as I have already done before I had performed the due discourses, expostulatory, supplicatory, or deprecatory, with my good lords, the critics. Towards some atonement for this grievous neglect, I do here make humbly bold to present them with a short account of themselves and their art, by looking into the original and pedigree of the word, as it is generally understood among us, and very briefly considering the ancient and present state thereof. By the word critic, at this day so frequent in all conversations, there have sometimes been distinguished three very different species of mortal men, according as I have read in ancient books and pamphlets. For first, by this term were understood such persons as invented or drew up rules for themselves and the world, by observing which a careful reader might be able to pronounce upon the productions of the learned, form his taste to a true relish of the sublime and the admirable, and divide every beauty of matter or of style from the corruption that apes it. In our common perusal of books, singling out the errors and defects, the nauseous, the fulsome, the dull, and the impertinent, with the caution of a man that walks through Edinburgh streets in a morning, who is indeed as careful as he can to watch diligently and spy out the filth in his way, not that he is curious to observe the colour and complexion of the order, or take its dimensions, much less to be paddling in or tasting it, but only with a design to come out as cleanly as he may. These men seem, though very erroneously, to have understood the appellation of critic in a literal sense, that one principal part of his office was to praise and acquit, and that a critic who sets up to read only for an occasion of censure and reproof is a creature as barbarous as a judge who should take up a resolution to hang all men that came before him upon a trial. Again by the word critic have been meant the restorers of ancient learning from the worms and graves and dust of manuscripts. Now the races of these two have been for some ages utterly extinct and besides, to discourse any further of them would not be at all to my purpose. The third and noblest sort is that of the true critic, whose original is the most ancient of all. Every true critic is a hero born, descending in a direct line from a celestial stem, by Momus and Hybris, who begat Zoilus, who begat Tigellius, who begat etc. the Elder, who begat Bentley, and Rhymer, and Watton, and Pyrrhol, and Dennis, who begat etc. the younger. And these are the critics from whom the commonwealth of learning has in all ages received such immense benefits that the gratitude of their admirers placed their origin in heaven among those of Hercules, Theseus, Perseus, and other great deservers of mankind. But heroic virtue itself have not been exempt from the obloquy of evil tongues. For it hath been objected that those ancient heroes, famous for their combating so many giants and dragons and robbers, 
wherein their own person is a great nuisance to mankind than any of those monsters they subdued, and therefore to render their obligations more complete when all other vermin were destroyed should in conscience have concluded with the same justice upon themselves as Hercules most generously did, and hath upon that score procured for himself more temples and votaries than the best of his fellows. For these reasons, I suppose it is why some have conceived it would be very expedient for the public good of learning that every true critic, as soon as he had finished his task assigned, should immediately deliver himself up to ratsbane or hemp, or from some convenient altitude, and that no man's pretensions to so illustrious a character should by any means be received before that operation was performed. Now, from this heavenly descent of criticism and the close analogy it bears to heroic virtue, it is easy to assign the proper employment of a true, ancient, genuine critic, which is to travel through this vast world of writings, to peruse and hunt those monstrous faults bred within them, to drag out the lurking errors, like Cacus from his den, to multiply them like Hydra's heads, to rake them together like Orgeus's dung, or else to drive away a sort of dangerous fowl who have a perverse inclination to plunder the best branches of the tree of knowledge, like those Stymphalian birds that ate up the fruit. These reasonings will furnish us with an adequate definition of a true critic, that he is a discoverer and collector of writer's faults, which may be further put beyond dispute by the following demonstration, that whoever will examine the writings in all kinds wherewith this ancient sect hath honoured the world, shall immediately find from the whole thread and tenor of them that the ideas of the authors have been altogether conversant and taken up with the faults and blemishes and oversights and mistakes of other writers and let the subject treated on be whatever it will their imaginations are so entirely possessed and replete with the defects of other pens that the very quintessence of what is bad does of necessity distill into their own by which means the whole appears to be nothing else but an abstract of the criticisms themselves have made. Having thus briefly considered the original and office of a critic, as the word is understood in its most noble and universal acception, I proceed to refute the objections of those who argue from the silence and pretermission of authors by which they pretend to prove that the very art of criticism, as now exercised and by me explained, is wholly modern, and consequently that the critics of Great Britain and France have no title to an original, so ancient and lustrous as I have deduced. Now, if I can clearly make out on the contrary that the most ancient writers have particularly described both the person and the office of a true critic agreeable to the definition laid down by me, their grand objection from the silence of authors will fall to the ground. I confess to have for a long time borne a part in this general error, from which I should never have acquitted myself. But through the assistance of our noble moderns, whose most edifying volumes I turn indefatigably over night and day, for the improvement of my mind and the good of my country, these have with unwearied pains made many useful searches into the weak sides of the ancients, and given us a comprehensive list of them. Besides, they have proved beyond contradiction that the very finest things delivered of old have been long since invented and brought to light by much later pens, and that the noblest discoveries that the ancients ever made in art or nature have all been produced by the transcending genius of the present age, 
which clearly shows how little merit those ancients can justly pretend to, and takes off that blind admiration paid them by men in a corner, who have the unhappiness of conversing too little with present things. Reflecting maturely upon all this, and taking in the whole compass of human nature, I easily concluded that these ancients, highly sensible of their many imperfections, must needs have endeavoured, from some passages in their works, to obviate, soften, or divert the censorious reader, by satire or panegyric, upon the true critics, in imitation of their masters, the moderns. Now, in the commonplaces of both these, I was plentifully instructed by a long course of useful study in prefaces and prologues, and therefore immediately resolved to try what I could discover of either by diligent perusal of the most ancient writers, and especially those who treated of the earliest times. Here I found to my great surprise that although they all entered upon occasion into particular descriptions of the true critic, according as they were governed by their fears or their hopes, yet whatever they touched of that kind was with abundance of caution, adventuring no further than mythology and hieroglyphic. This, I suppose, gave ground to superficial readers for urging the silence of authors against the antiquity of the true critic, though the types are so apposite, and the application so necessary and natural, that it is not easy to conceive how any reader of modern eye and taste could overlook them. I shall venture from a great number to produce a few which I am very confident will put this question beyond doubt. It well deserves considering that these ancient writers, in treating enigmatically upon this subject, have generally fixed upon the very same hieroglyph, varying only the story according to their affectations or their wit. For first, Pausanias is of opinion that the perfection of writing correct was entirely owing to the institution of critics, and that he can possibly mean no other and the true critic is, I think, manifest enough from the following description. He says they were a race of men who delighted to nibble at the superfluities and excrescencies of books, which the learned at length observing took warning of their own accord to lop the luxuriant, the rotten, the dead, the sapless, and the overgrown branches from their works. But now all this he cunningly shades under the following allegory, that the Norplians in Argea learned the art of pruning their vines by observing that when an ass had browsed upon one of them, it thrived the better and bore fairer fruit. But Herodotus, holding the very same hieroglyph, speaks much plainer and almost in terminus. He hath been so bold as to tax the true critics of ignorance and malice, telling us openly, for I think nothing can be plainer, that in the western part of Libya there were asses with horns, upon which relation Cetesius yet refines mentioning the very same animal about India, adding that whereas all other asses wanted a gall, these horned ones were so redundant in that part that their flesh was not to be eaten because of extreme bitterness. Now the reason why those ancient writers treated this subject only by types and figures was because they durst not make open attacks against a party so potent and so terrible as the critics of those ages were whose very voice was so dreadful that a legion of authors would tremble and drop their pens at the sound. For so Herodotus tells us expressly in another place, how a vast army of Scythians was put to flight in a panic terror by the braying of an ass. From hence it is conjectured by certain profound philologers that the great awe and reverence paid to a true critic by the writers of Britain have been derived to us from those our Scythian ancestors. 
In short, this dread was so universal that in process of time those authors who had a mind to publish their sentiments more freely in describing the true critics of their several ages were forced to leave off the use of the former hieroglyph as too nearly approaching the prototype, and invented other terms instead, thereof that were more cautious and mystical. So Diodorus, speaking to the same purpose, ventures no farther than to say that in the mountains of Helicon there grows a certain weed which bears a flower of so damned a scent as to poison those who offer to smell it. Lucretius gives exactly the same relation. Est etium in magnis Heliconis montibus arbus, flores odore hominem retro consueta necare. Bossetesius, whom we lately quoted, has been a great deal bolder who had been used with much severity by the true critics of his own age, and therefore could not forbear to leave behind him at least one deep mark of his vengeance against the whole tribe. His meaning is so near the surface that I wonder how it possibly came to be overlooked by those who deny the antiquity of the true critics. For pretending to make a description of many strange animals about India, he has set down these remarkable words. Among the rest, says he, there is a serpent that wants teeth, and consequently cannot bite, but if its vomit, to which it is much addicted, happens to fall upon anything, a certain rottenness or corruption ensues. These serpents are generally found among the mountains where jewels grow, and they frequently emit a poisonous juice, whereof whoever drinks, that person's brain flies out of his nostrils. There was also among the ancients a sort of critic, not distinguished in specie from the former, but in growth or degree, who seem to have been only the tyros or junior scholars, yet because of their differing employments they are frequently mentioned as a sect by themselves. The usual exercise of these young students was to attend constantly at theatres and learn to spy out the worst parts of the play, whereof they were obliged carefully to take note and render a rational account to their tutors. Fleshed at these smaller sports, like young wolves, they grew up in time to be nimble and strong enough for hunting down large game. For it has been observed, both among ancients and moderns, that a true critic has one quality in common with a whore and an alderman, never to change his title or his name, that a grey critic has been certainly a green one, the perfections and acquirements of his age being only the improved talents of his youth, like hemp, which some naturalists inform us is bad for suffocations, though taken but in the seed. I esteem the invention, or at least the refinement of prologues, to have been owing to these younger proficients, of whom Terence makes frequent and honourable mention under the name of Malevoli. Now it is certain the institution of the true critics was of absolute necessity to the commonwealth of learning. For all human actions seem to be divided like Themistocles and his company. One man can fiddle, and another can make a small town a great city and he that cannot do either one or the other deserves to be kicked out of the creation. The avoiding of which penalty is doubtless given the first birth to the nation of critics, and withal an occasion for their secret detractors to report that a true critic is a sort of mechanic, set up with a stock and tools for his trade, at as little expense as a tailor, and that there is much analogy between the utensils and abilities of both. That the tailor's hell is the type of a critic's commonplace book, and his wit and learning held forth by the goose. That it requires at least as many of these to the making up of one scholar as of the others to the composition of a man. 
that the valour of both is equal and their weapons near of a size. Much may be said in answer to these invidious reflections, and I can positively affirm the first to be a falsehood. For on the contrary, nothing is more certain than it requires greater layings out to be free of the critic's company than of any other you can name. For as to be a true beggar, it will cost the richest candidate every groat he is worth. So before one can commence a true critic, it will cost a man all the good qualities of his mind, which perhaps for a less purchase will be thought but an indifferent bargain. Having thus amply proved the antiquity of criticism and described the primitive state of it, I shall now examine the present condition of this empire, and show how well it agrees with its ancient self. A certain author, whose works of many ages since been entirely lost, does in his fifth book and eighth chapter say of critics that their writings are the mirrors of learning. This I understand in a literal sense, and suppose our author must mean that whosoever designs to be a perfect writer must inspect into the books of critics and correct his inventions there as in a mirror. Now whoever considers that the mirrors of the ancients were made of brass and fine mercurio may presently apply the two principal qualifications of a true modern critic, and consequently must needs conclude that these have always been and must be forever the same. For brass is an emblem of duration, and when it is skilfully burnished will cast reflections from its own superficies without any assistance of mercury from behind. Or the other talents of a critic will not require a particular mention, being included or easily deducible to these. However, I shall conclude with three maxims, which may serve both as characteristics to distinguish a true modern critic from a pretender, and will be also of admirable use to those worthy spirits who engage in so useful and honourable an art. First, is that critics, contrary to all other faculties of the intellect, is ever held the truest and best when it is the very first result of the critic's mind, as fowlers reckon the first aim for the surest and seldom fail of missing the mark if they stay not for a second. Secondly, the true critics are known by their talent of swarming about the noblest writers to which they are carried merely by instinct, as a rat to the best cheese, or a wasp to the fairest fruit. So when the king is a horseback, he is sure to be the dirtiest person of the company, and they that make their court best are such as bespatter him most. Lastly, a true critic, in the perusal of a book, is like a dog at a feast, whose thoughts and stomach are wholly set upon what the guests fling away, and consequently is apt to snarl most when they are the fewest bones. Thus much, I think, is sufficient to serve, by way of address to my patrons, the true modern critics, and may very well atone for my past silence, as well as that which I am like to observe for the future. I hope I have deserved so well of their whole body as to meet with generous and tender usage at their hands. Supported by which expectation, I go on boldly to pursue those adventures already so happily begun. End of section 3